Welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Hey Trevor, you going riding today? Uh, I think I am. I think you and I are heading out to do some climbs today. That's true. We might be doing some KOM hunting on Strava. Uh, well, seeing as we're going with Sepp Koos, I think he might be getting some KOMs. We're going to be a little behind. Mm, maybe. Well, in any case, it's good to put our rides up on Strava because with Health IQ, the life insurance company that specializes in healthy, active people like cyclists, runners, and swimmers, They're able to give us favorable rates for life insurance, and they have a special URL, www.healthiq.com slash fasttalk. While you're there, you can submit race results, screen grabs of your Strava or MapMyRun account, or other proof that you are indeed a regular cyclist and get a better quote. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Fast Talk. This is another Facebook Live session. So you might notice that um, this is not Kaylee sitting beside me. We have a new co-host for Fast Talk. So I I have formally introduced him in a podcast that will go up tomorrow. Uh, But let me, since this is our first official posting with you, Chris, let me introduce you now. So Chris is a managing editor at VeloNews. Um, he has a science background. He, you studied neuroscience. I studied neuroscience. Um, so yep. be prepared. You now have two geeks on Fast Talk. This could get a little scary. Geek and a half. Yeah. Uh, Chris has also been known periodically to ride a bike. Um, <laughs> this is true. He, uh, I think is top five on most of the Strava segments in Boulder, which is saying a lot because there's a bunch of pros below him on various ones. I'm strategic with uh, with what I do on Strava, so sometimes in the top five. <laughs> sometimes. Uh, last week, we discovered what a top climber in the world looks like uh, as we time-trialed up Flagstaff up against uh, uh, Sepp Kuss, and both got a little embarrassed, I'd say. Yes, we did. He had actually a pretty phenomenal ride for November, and uh, we're... Trevor and I are writing a big piece about the science of climbing, and you'll be able to read all about that performance, our performances, a lot of other cool stuff in a uh, future ep- uh, issue of the magazine. Yeah. So, Sepp, when he did his time trial, he had a decent time. It was good enough for top 10, and, and this is one of the Strava segments all the pros go after. Uh, and then when we looked at it in Strava, we discovered that he had done a, a warm-up going partway up the climb, and he triggered the segment coming down. So his amazing time included his continuing to descend a little, taking his clothing off, standing around, having his bike held, and then finally starting the time trial. So he was a top 10 adding an, a minute 15. When we cut that minute 15 out, uh, he is number two on the segment with only Tom Danielson ahead of him. Yeah. It was pretty amazing. He's going to do cool things, hopefully, when he gets to Europe next year with Lotto NL Yumbo. I'm really looking forward to what he can do over there. Uh, you know, first year will probably get his head kicked in a little bit, but, you know, it'll be fun to watch. We will see. Um, so hit us with your questions. We are here for an hour to answer whatever you'd like us to answer. Uh, we had a couple that were submitted ahead of time, so let's dig into these. Uh, first one is from Dr. Dan Madoff. Um, and he says, I've always had a hard time recovering from doing strength work more than once a week while also trying to accomplish other off-season goals for cycling. 
So I tend to only lift once a week, manage only one day of threshold or VO2 work, and one long ride before getting enough recovery for the weekend group ride. We traditionally calculate training periods in terms of weeks, and coaches schedule workouts on a seven-day microcycle. This is common practice for obvious reasons of work schedule, more free time on weekends, and when, we, uh, when races are held. But now that road season is over, why not uh, set up microcycles to be five or ten days? Could more effective plans be created for a better training response if we don't force our physiology to fit the traditional Gregorian calendar? If you were to devise an off-season plan based on a five or ten or whatever day microcycle, what would that look like? Uh, so the first response I have to that is kind of what you, you've already implied in this, which is there is a reason for, for doing seven days. Um, we tend to go hard on the weekends. We have group rides on the weekends. We race on the weekends. Um, so essentially, just by the nature of, of how things are scheduled, you're going to tend to beat yourself up on the weekend, recover the first couple days of the week, uh, then maybe get a little bit of interval work in and, and get ready for the weekend again. So there's just a, a huge practicality side to that um, that you have to work with. And I know a lot of athletes, um, high-level athletes, who say even in the off-season, they want to keep that going to have their body used to it. So, for example, I always take Mondays off because when I'm racing, I'm going to race Saturday and Sunday generally. So Monday's going to be recovery day. So even in the off season, I like to take Monday off to get my body used to that schedule. Uh, so it's not unfamiliar during the race season. But that being said, you're right. When you're training, you're really trying to maximize adaptations. And instead of saying maybe we should do a five day or a 10 day, I would say look at more how your body adapts. So when you're looking at that short term uh, sort of adaptations, I like the kind of one to three days of hitting yourself hard and then maybe a couple days of recovery. So if you just hit yourself one day hard, maybe one day of recovery. If you had a couple days of hitting yourself hard, a couple days of off or, or super easy. Um, so that's kind of the short term. And, and that doesn't matter if it's Monday to Sunday or, for example, maybe you hit yourself hard on Sunday, continue to hit yourself hard Monday, Tuesday, then take Wednesday and Thursday easy. Um, it doesn't really matter what days it lies on. I would just look at those two, three-day blocks. Um, bigger adaptations, they say, generally take four to six weeks. Um, so again, instead of looking at a, a single week, look at 28 to 40-day uh, type cycles where you, you do a gradual build. Um, maybe towards the end of that, you have anywhere from five days to seven, eight, nine days of, of really hard training to beat yourself up. And then you have a recovery period. And that recovery period should be whatever your body needs. And actually, with athletes I coach, um, I'll tell them after a big block, okay, we need a recovery week. And too often they feel like, okay, that means seven days and I will be recovered at the end of that seven days. It's not how your body works. Sometimes they're recovered in five days and ready to go. Um, I've done some training camps where nine days later I'm still fatigued and I need to keep resting. So it's more look at the how your body adapts. It's basically hit the body hard, then recover, um, get your body back to a good level of homeostasis, and then, then hit it hard again. Um, and it doesn't matter if that's a Monday to Sunday or, or whatever that schedule is. Hope that answers the question. All right, we have another question coming mm -hmm. from one of our uh, watchers out there. Luis or Lewis, I'm 56. Can I get stronger? Um, 
hard question to answer simply because I don't know how strong you currently <laughs> are. True. Uh, if you're winning the Tour de France, probably not. Um, okay, sorry, bad joke. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're really good at the bad jokes. <laughs> I've, I've not been doing well. We are at the end of two weeks of recording. I think I've used up all of my humor, so I will apologize about the bad jokes over the next hour. Uh, it does depend, though. Um, but I will say this belief that you hit a certain age um, and then it's all downhill isn't necessarily true. Uh, the way I always look at it is, yes, we have a genetic potential. Um, and if you are winning the Tour de France, yes, age is not your friend because you're very quickly going to get to a point um, where you are going to decline because you are at your potential, at the right age. So Chris Froome, um, he's not going to be coming back at 45 winning the Tour de France. Um, for most of us, we never get that close to our genetic potential. Um, so even though they say, well, you know, there's this age effect, you're going you're gonna to decline, um, that, that ceiling, so if this is your genetic potential, might be up here and it might be dropping slowly. But if you're here, even though that's come down, you still have that potential to improve. And I have seen people get better in their 40s and 50s. Uh, when you look at the science of aging, the, the decline is very, very gradual. Um, it's really not until you're in your 70s that you start to see a, a more precipitous decline. I would add to that that uh, we just did record a podcast, so yeah. look for it in the future on aging and how that affects your training, your performances, things you can do to improve performances. Um, talk to Ned over, and it was a great discussion Uh I'm not. Do you know the when that will be out, Trevor? Uh, that actually won't be out until the winter, but it, w it was an exciting one. We're looking forward to putting yeah, that up. That was a great one. And ironically, so Ned um, sent us a physiological test he did at BCSM uh, when he was 53. And one of the comments we made is, if you had covered up the age of the person, covered up his name, and told us that was a uh, a 20 year old um, or somebody in their 20s, we would say this this is a talented rider who's going somewhere. Um, so you can certainly stay very strong uh, much later than, than people would think. We've okay. got a we've got a question from Twitter. If you mm -hmm. want to take this one, this one's an interesting one. Uh, explain about pickle juice. I use it for acid reflux, but for cramps. Oh boy, I can't even remember the name of the chemical in the pickle juice. It's the only time I've ever heard it. Uh, yes, pickle juice can help with cramping. Uh, they thought. It was proof that sodium um, helps with cramping because obviously pickle juice has a lot of sodium in it. But uh, I forget the name of the researcher. He did a, a really interesting study where he had some people take pickle juice and other people take uh, water with equivalent concentration of sodium. Um, the water-sodium mix had no effect uh, where the pickle juice still helped. So it's a particular chemical, and I apologize, I'm forgetting the name, um, that actually has neurological effects. So as we were saying in that cramping episode, um, the cramp, uh, cramping is essentially a neuromuscular thing. Um, uh, basically, you have inhibitors, you, you have organs in your, your muscles, and I'm trying not to get too much into the terminology, uh, some that basically inhibit contraction, uh, others that promote contraction, and they get out of balance. Um, so that's your proprioceptors and your, your Golgi tendons. Um, and that's a, a neuromuscular thing. Um, so this chemical in pickle juice seems to have a, a, a neuromuscular effect. 
that promotes the relaxation. Okay. Let's, um, we're getting a bunch now, but let, I had one that was also emailed in um, that I wanted to answer. Sure. So this is from Bruce Dalton. How do you calculate TSS of a cross-training effort like gym work other than using heart rate TSS as the downstream impact is often higher than that of a bike session? Uh, so the second part of that, I really love that you make that point because when they look at the effects of weightlifting versus endurance work, um, if you actually wear a heart rate strap while you're, you're doing weightlifting, um, you're going to see that you, if you lift weights for an hour, it's going to tell you only burned a hundred calories, which, which isn't very accurate. Um, endurance work, you really see a lot of the impact during the ride. Um, weightlifting work, it's kind of a delayed effect. So a lot of the calorie burning actually happens after the weightlifting, um, an endurance ride, if you just go out for a two-hour ride, you're going to be mostly recovered unless you're doing hard, hard intervals. But just a regular two-hour ride, you're going to be recovered within six to 12 hours. If you do a one-hour weightlifting session, um, you're looking at 48 to 72 hours for recovery. So the effects at the time, not huge, but it has really lasting effects. It beats you up a lot more than cycling. Uh, so really hard to come up with an equivocal TSS. Um, so my response to the TSS is that is a metric. It is not the end-all, be-all metric. Um, it's something that I do look at with my athletes to get an idea of how hard they're training. Um, but I do not believe that you can just look at TSS um, and, and have a complete understanding of your training and, and how it's going. Be careful with these metrics. They are guides. They are not perfect. Um, and, and they are not going to show you your fitness, your performance level, uh, your recovery level. Um, and if you rely too much on TSS, I think you're going to get yourself in trouble. So ultimately, my answer is, I don't think you can come up with a good TSS for, for weight training. Um, so just don't put that big a focus uh, on TSS. Or Not answering that right, but I'm saying, um, I, I don't think whatever TSS number you have is going to be a... Um, fully accurate measure of, of the, the full stress you put your body through that week. All right. Okay. Um, we've got a question from Alex Martins on, uh, through Facebook. Hi, Trevor. Training hard while trying to lose weight is tricky. Cutting carbs and HIIT don't go along well, not to mention that recovery also suffers and lack of disposition from running low on carbs. Any ideas? to help a fellow Canadian lose 40 pounds while starting training season. Thanks in advance. Yeah, that is one that a lot of people struggle with. Um, and we've been doing a lot of, uh, so we did a, we're doing a recovery podcast. Um, I've been writing a couple articles lately on recovery, on burnout, on overtraining. Uh, and it's amazing how often uh, research uh, on the effects of carb depletion um, has come up. So they've shown that uh, if you are depleting your carbohydrate and your glycogen, that pushes burnout. Um, that delays recovery. Um, it can actually, if you're constantly carb depleted, it can make you believe you're burnt out when you're not. Um, so there is a lot of negative effects of not, as an endurance athlete, of not getting sufficient carbohydrates uh, in your system. And you certainly, uh, we had that podcast with Dr. Holly, who's one of the, the top uh, sports nutrition researchers in the world. Um, 
he certainly had a lot to say about low carbohydrate diets. So if you're trying to drop weight, um, A, you don't need to do it by cutting all your carbohydrates. Um, I am still a believer that you should just be focusing on the foods that you're eating, um, just eating a, a little fewer uh, calories. Um, when I'm cutting weight, I don't just cut carbohydrates. I just try to eat a little healthier and eat a little less, um, but I'm still getting sufficient carbohydrates in my system. Uh, that being said, losing weight at the height of your season is very stressful on your body. Um, so most experienced cyclists are going to try to lose weight in the off season, knowing that, yes, it's a bit of a strain. It's going to be a little hard to train, but you're mostly doing base work. Uh, it doesn't need to feel perfect. You don't need to be winning the races in, in December and January. Uh, so they're willing to sacrifice, uh, feeling not as good on the bike to drop the weight then and come into the season at the ideal weight and then just try to maintain it. Uh, so my recommendation to you, 40 pounds is a lot to lose. I would actually say try to do that across a couple seasons, not one season, um, and maybe look at this year, drop 15 to 20 pounds by March, and then try to sustain that through the year. And then next year, see if you can drop a little more. On a related note, um, to pitch a future episode of the podcast, we had a lot of requests for Trevor to talk about his, sort of his nutrition background. He's got a, a degree in, um, or worked on, wheat and performance and uh, autoimmune disorders in uh, at CSU and knows a lot about the subject. Uh, we dive deep into um, his sort of biases, but also get into um, how you can take uh, his method f uh, of nutrition and turn it into performance gains. So look for that episode also sometime in uh, early 2018, I believe. Uh, yeah, that won't be coming out actually in December. Oh, okay. Very so good. Not too far away. And, and the, the very short thing, going back to that question that we just heard, because I'm getting asked this more and more. Um, so I will tell you, my thesis advisor was, was Lauren Cordain, who is the inventor of the paleo diet. I am involved <laughs> in that. Uh, and we will talk a little bit about that on the podcast. Um, paleo diet, a lot of people believe is a, a no carbohydrate diet, which it's not. Um, but we are certainly lower carbohydrate than traditional sports nutrition. All that being said, when people come to me and say, I need to lose weight or I need to get healthy, so I need to cut carbohydrates. No, um, sorry. Um, and I even have friends who are involved with the ketogenic diet. And there's a lot of research that ketogenic diet is great for, for uh, has great anti-cancer properties, but it's not necessarily something that I'm going to recommend for endurance athletes. And no, I do not believe the team sky is following a ketogenic diet. Sorry. <laughs> All right. We'll leave that one at that. Uh, Lenny Paris from Facebook says, any tips on doing your first FTP test on a trainer? Oh boy. Uh, well, it depends on the test that you are using. Um, the key thing here is when you are doing these tests, you are not you're not looking for a PR. When I, I always tell my athletes, what we are looking for is um, to see where you are currently at. So for example, I just had to talk with an athlete two days ago because I have him doing an FTP test in a week. Um, and so he, even though I didn't have intervals on his training plan yet, he went and, and did a bunch of intervals. And I went, that wasn't on your plan. Why'd you do that? And he goes, well, I got the FTP test coming up. I, I've got to see where, you know, I've got to make sure I'm ready. And I went, no, the point is to just see where you're at. This is not a race. 
Um, so you want to try to get the best number that you can get. Um, but it's more, as I said, to see where you are currently at. So this isn't an indicator of how you're going to race. This is a get numbers for effective training. Um, we are actually going to be putting up in two weeks a uh, podcast where we talk a little bit about FTP uh, with some of the folks at Sufferfest. And, and Neil Henderson uh, talks a little bit about a test that he came up with, which is actually what I use with my athletes. Um, it's painful. It's tough. But you get to see a lot of different physiological markers. Um, and so it's you do a couple five-second sprints, then a short break, then a five-minute effort then a short break, then a 20-minute effort, then a short break, and then a one-minute effort. They all need to be done within an hour. Um, it is tough, and you're actually going to get lower numbers, but they're a better indicator of where you are physiologically actually at. And you do each effort as hard as you can. Okay. Great. Uh, we have another question from Facebook, Michelle Freckleton, which is a great name, by the way, Freckleton. Hi, Michelle. I didn't train much in 2017. How long do you think it will take me to get back to my former level of fitness? Can I get stronger than 2016? I'm planning strength and base miles right now. I want to come back strong next year. Uh, so again, that's a, unfortunately a depends question. Um, a depends question. Huh? Oh boy, I set myself <laughs> up for that one. Uh, you are getting old, Trevor. <laughs> yes. That is actually one of the things that it depends on. Um I don't know what your level was in 2016. Um, if you were at a very, very high level and you just took a year off, you might not be able to get there in a year. I mean, if you were at close to your, your genetic peak, it can take a little bit to get back. Um, likewise, the older we get, the harder it is to get back to, to previous form. Um, so those all factor in. Um, so my answer to you is, Maybe yes, maybe no. Um, I would focus this year on really getting that base level back up um, and not trying to be at your former level by March. Um, maybe saying this is a, a development year and uh, if I can be there by the summer, that'd be fantastic. Uh, I just went through that. I had a horrible 2015, 2016. 2016, I was probably the weakest I, I have been in 15 years. Um, so in 2017, I came back and said, I want to start getting back to my former level. Um, and I actually took my base all the way through June saying, I'm going to sacrifice the spring races uh, to raise my level. Um, by the summer, I was getting back to my former level. I was getting into races, still wasn't getting great results, but starting to feel the legs come back. But I will tell you, honestly, it wasn't until September and October uh, that I was hitting the levels I was hitting before 2015. So it can it can take a while. Um, so I would look long-term and, and see this year as, hey, it'd be great if you could hit that level by the spring, but look at it more the way I did as, let's, let's see this as a development year and, and hitting my old form at some point this year would be a bonus. Great. We have a uh, sort of a tech question. Um, okay. Hi, guys. Looking to drop some coin. This is from Alan French. Looking to drop some coin on a power trainer next year. It looks like a Wahoo kicker versus a Watt bike. Adam, have you tested both? And if so, do you have a preference? And if so, why? Uh, this is where we need to see if any of our, our tech people are, are here. Uh, I so have I, not. I have not ridden 
those two uh, trainers myself. Maybe a kicker once, but I can't speak to it. And watt bike, no. But I, I have ridden. Um, well, so the watt bike is the dedicated bike, and I actually wrote a review on that a few years ago. Uh, if which you could probably find on velonews.com. Right. Uh, if it is still the watt bike you're talking about is the same as the one that I tested. Uh, they are very, very different systems. Um, so the watt bike doesn't really control your power. You have to essentially control your own power. Um, it has a great spin scan showing the, the smoothness of your stroke that I really got into and, and enjoyed. Um, but it is an entirely different system. A Wahoo kicker, um, is one where you can have, uh, the trainer actually control your power. You can program workouts into it. Um, you put your bike on it, um, but you take your rear wheel off. So it still has a, a nice feeling, f- uh, flywheel, uh, in terms of the ones where you put your bike on it, the, the best I've ever ridden is the Wahoo kicker. If you are looking for a dedicated bike, um, to ride on, and you don't mind that you have to control your own workouts, you have to control your own power. Uh, I really did enjoy the Watt bike, but they are, it's comparing apples to oranges a little bit. They're, they're designed for very different purposes. Cool. Can't believe I remembered all that. <laughs> um, Joe, Joe Shuhei has a pretty broad question. Best advice to avoid overtraining? Oh boy, that's, that's, that's a huge one. Episode um, of a podcast itself or multiple podcasts, I would believe. And that really is one that we should address um, at some point. And it is a complex subject. Writing it down. Uh, but what I will tell you in the short run is recovery, recovery, recovery. Um, so I like to say that there is no such a thing as overtraining. There is only such a thing as under recovery. Um, your recovery has to be commensurate to your training. And if you are training too hard and not recovering enough, that is what pushes you towards burnout. Um, remember, uh, one of the coaches for, uh, for the back when it was called the Garmin squad, uh, had a really good point that if you have one day every week where you feel fully recovered, it is almost impossible to burn out. Um, we will go into, we're actually recording later today. We're, we're bringing in a guest, uh, we're doing a whole episode on recovery metrics, and we will certainly talk about overtraining and, and uh, overreaching then. Um, and very important to distinguish those two. Um, overreaching is generally considered functional, though there is what's called functional overreaching, and, and this is how complex it gets, non-functional overreaching. But to improve your level, you do need to push yourself. You do need to hit those points of fatigue. Um, and so... Generally, that's referred to as overreaching. Then you have a good recovery and you come out of it stronger. Overtraining is when you've gone way past being functional. Um, Overtraining also takes much longer to recover. So an overreach, you can generally be recovered from in a week. Overtraining, you are looking at months. Sometimes uh, I I know of athletes and experience with this myself where it can take years. Uh, It is something you want to avoid. It is a season ender. It can also affect you for the rest of your life. Um, when I came back from my year and a half off from my overtraining, I was not the same cyclist. Uh, uh, I used to actually have a decent sprint. After that, I had no sprint. I think there there is also something to be said about the terminology, of course. Some people mm-hmm. probably use overtraining in a more casual way that, than what you're saying, but that's more overreaching. And so you just have to be sure 
to to define your terms and know what you're talking about too. Right. But overtraining is a very serious thing. It can f- affect hormonal levels, um, all sorts of stuff, and you can get into some serious trouble there. Yeah, in my case, it put me in the hospital for two weeks. Um, you know, I had a severe form. Hopefully, none of you will ever experience that. Um, really good signs that you are overtraining are you just can't do the work as hard. You are getting sick quite frequently. Um, there are a lot of cyclists who get diagnosed with mono when it's actually overtraining because the symptoms of overtraining and mono are virtually identical. So if you start feeling those symptoms and you're seeing the doctor and the doctor says you might have mono, um, don't rule out, Hey, I've been training really hard. Maybe this is actually an overtraining thing. But the answer to the question, recovery, get that recovery. And, and every athlete I've ever worked with gets concerned about taking time off. They get concerned about rest. And when I finally get them to rest, uh, they are they are terrified. It's like, I'm going to lose all my fitness because I've had athletes take seven to 10 days off. And then they come back and they're always stronger and they're always shocked. Hey, Trevor, I heard you ride a bike. Is that true? Uh, sometimes, maybe. Do you ever go for runs? Uh, yes, and they are painfully slow. I bet they are. I, I can only imagine. You ever swim? No. No, I actually did a triathlon a few years ago and discovered I was faster walking along the bottom oh, of the pool than swimming. What about sinking? Do you, do you ever sink? Well, that was part of walking along the bottom <laughs> of the pool now, wasn't it? There you go. Hey, well, it doesn't matter whether you're a runner, a cyclist, a swimmer, a triathlete. You want to head over to Health IQ's website. They're a life insurance company that specializes in healthy, active people like you. They're able to give us favorable quotes on life insurance, and they have a special website just for Fast Talk listeners. That's www.healthiq.com slash fast talk. While you're over there, you can submit race results, screen grabs of your Strava or Map My Run account, or any other proof you have that you are indeed a regular cyclist, runner, or fit person, and you'll get a better quote. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, except I think if I put my runs or my swims up there, they're going to be like, this guy's on his deathbed. <laughs> oh, boy. We're not giving well, him insurance. Just, just put the cycling results up there. <laughs> that I can do. Here's a question from Facebook from Antonio Sagatti. Okay. I am relatively new to cycling. I started last year. My main focus was to build my FTP mostly with sweet spot training. My intervals are between 15 minutes to 60 minutes, depending on how much time and motiva- motivation I have. Now I want to start with base training. I consider base training to be a ride where my heart rate doesn't go over 130, between 220 to 230 watts. My threshold heart rate is 161. Should I focus solely on base training to get the best results, or can I still do my sweet spot intervals one to two times a week or ride my cyclocross bike in the woods? How should I structure my base training phase? How long should I do base training for, and how do I know when to stop base training? There's a lot of a lot of questions in there. Okay. So I, I would love to see your numbers. Um and get a little more of a profile on you. So I'm, I'm doing some guesswork based on, on the few numbers that I'm seeing here. Uh, but the first thing I'm going to say is, in my opinion, you are doing your base training way too hard. That is a lot of sweet spot work. Um, my FTP, uh, when I am, so my, my threshold wattage, um, when I'm relatively on form is around, 
anywhere from 360 to 380 watts. When I do my base work, I am riding at 150, 160 watts. So when you tell me you're doing 220 to 230, uh, I know that's pushing me. That's hard. I would not consider that base riding. Uh, so unless your threshold is over 400 watts, that tells me you're going too hard. Likewise, my threshold heart rate um, is in the mid-170s. When I'm doing base work, I'm riding sub-125. So 350, I think you're going too hard. Um, I think your base work generally, you know, there's different types of base work. And, and I'm only going to very give you a very cursory answer to this because that is a huge question. Um, but I think there are different types of rides. So I have what I just call long, slow distance, and those need to be easy. So um, if your threshold heart rate is 161, and I do all my base work by heart rate, not by power, um, and, and there's reason for that, and we can go into cardiac drift later and a variety of other factors. Um, but my, my feeling is you should be 120 beats per minute or lower on those base rides, and that is slow. And you're going to go out and do that ride and probably email me and say that was painfully slow. Um, when I have new athletes, I take them out for rides. I take them out for my base pace, and they can never believe it is that slow. But back when I was training with, with pros like Swain Tuff and, and Ryder Heschel and guys like that at, at the National Center, that's how slow our rides were. Uh, there's another type of ride, which is that aerobic threshold ride, where you do push um, the base level up a little bit. Um, so again, I, I don't want to take up the whole podcast with just the, the one question, but uh, we have an anaerobic threshold or what you, you're talking about with your FTP. We also have a lower threshold called your aerobic threshold, which is generally around 80 to 85% of your anaerobic threshold. And it's good in the base season to do rides at, at that intensity as well. Uh, again, I prefer to do them by heart rate. I don't know what your range is, um, but your wattage, that's where you're getting towards that uh, 200 to, to 230 range. Um, mixing up some of those rides, keeping them steady, keeping them really steady uh, is important during the base season. Um, and I would say you can work in some sweet spot. Uh, I tend not to work it in until you're getting within a couple months of the season. So sorry, that, like I said, that's a really cursory answer, but it's a big question. Yeah. Anybody out there that has a second question, feel free to ask. We've got plenty more here, but always want more questions to answer. Um, we've got one from Facebook here from Dennis Tukua. Uh, I'm 68 years old, live at 6,500 feet. What are the pros and cons of riding and training at this elevation? Oh, boy. We're, we're getting the, the simple questions. <laughs> yeah. Um. You know, I, I wrote a paper a long time ago on, on altitude training. It was soon after I moved to Colorado, so I was fascinated by it uh, and really wanted to see what the gains were. And really the conclusion was there, there are cons and there are pros. It depends on the individual. And there's, you can't say that necessarily training at altitude is going to help you uh, or that necessarily it's going to hurt you. If you have lived at altitude your whole life, you have adaptations that people who move to altitude uh, will never get. Um, so if you've always lived here, your body's kind of already adjusted to it, so uh, no real issues. The, the short, short answer to that question, um, again, I'm trying not to spend too much time on, on just one question. Um, generally, people who train at that high an altitude have a hard time 
doing intensity type work. Um, so for example, when I was living in Colorado, um, the racing and the style of racing was let's keep a really high pace. We'll, we'll take it up to threshold and, and try to ride people off our wheels, but you didn't see a lot of attacking. Um, when I moved to Toronto, which is at sea level, it's just attack, 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 attack. If you try that at altitude, you're going to have two, three attacks and blow up um, because your body just can't handle it. So um, I think in order to undo some of the negative effects of altitude or living at altitude, what I discovered I need to do myself and with my athletes is a lot of high intensity, short Tabata style intervals um, to build that, uh, to, to um, work that side that, that tends to get hurt by being at altitude, if that makes sense. All right. Okay. I have a pretty long question, another complex question from a listener on uh, Twitter. Okay. Uh, and this this pertains to or, or refers back to the lactic acid and lactate episode, one of uh, okay. listeners' favorites out there. So if you haven't checked out the podcast that Trevor and Kaylee with Dr. Glowney, I believe it was, did on lactate was well we didn't we didn't have a guess uh, but we did have some we, we put some short interviews right, into that right. one go check that one out it's deep it's uh at times dark i would say but it's uh <laughs> it's very um fascinating discussion on lactate so here we go uh in the at the end of the podcast you were talking about building the top end to train the lactate clearance you have to do long four plus hour rides to work on the slow twitch muscles I see how this makes sense from a road racing perspective, but does that change for different race disciplines, i.e. 40 to 60 minute crits versus cross races versus shorter track events versus track TT events? Right. Basically, can can you do shorter, quote, sweet spot, sweet spot training for the shorter events? Is sweet spot training necessary for short events that are generally high intensity from the start? That's a good question. So remember when we were talking about lactate and lactate clearance, we were talking about just one of the physiological adaptations that you need. Uh, so there's no way, I hope nobody interprets me saying you, you build that lactate clearance and you are now a superstar cyclist and you can out sprint everybody. You can jump in track events, crit events, long road races, and you're going to kill everybody. Um, you certainly need to work on other aspects of your training as well. That being said, I do think this lactate clearance is important for everybody because no matter what type of racing you do, um, you are going to have to do high intensity where you're building a lot of lactate and that clearance ability needs to be there, even in short track events. And actually, one of the studies that I, I referenced um, in that podcast, they had a, a really interesting story about, and I can't remember the name, no, I was great with names. Uh, but a, an Olympic gold medal 400-meter um, runner who used to go out and do a lot of hour-plus long runs. And uh, he said that it helped his 400-meter. And I think what, and what they, reason they brought that up in the study was to say, you know, even for somebody doing that short a distance, building the lactate clearance is important. And I do know a lot of, you know, outside of track sprinters, which is a completely different discipline where you want to spend more than half your time in the weight room. But for other style track events, I think you are going to get benefits um, from getting in some of those longer rides, working those slow twitch and working that lactate clearance. 
But if that's all you do, you are not going to do well in track events. So maybe that's part of your base season, something you do periodically during the season. But the focus of your work still needs to be high, high intensity. Same thing with crit riding. Um, if you have that better clearance, you have that better threshold, you can sit in the field and your tongue is not hanging out. And then when it comes time later to attack, um, you're going to have something left in the legs. But you need to have a good attack as well. Great. We've got a question from Sean Hurley. Uh, I need some help coping with heat. I've moved to a much hotter part of the country, and I'm having serious problems coping and hydrating during long road events. Any suggestions? Boy, you are just you're getting hit with all the, 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 <laughs> the easy questions the giant, here. The giant topics. These are all the big ones. Um, and we've, uh, got, we've got about 20, 22 minutes left, so, you know. Send us more questions. Yep. Take your time, Trevor. We've got a lot of things we can discuss still. So you have no idea how much it's pain. it pains me to say this, um, but there is a fair amount of evidence that before events, um, particularly the night before and the morning before, doing some sodium loading will help. Um, I am a big believer that we dramatically overconsume salt um, and have been writing some articles on the, the huge negative health effects. So I am not promoting eating a ton of sodium as a, a good health approach, but a good performance approach. So um, as a lot of you know, I go down to a race on the equator in October. It is painfully hot. Um, I usually don't consume a lot of sodium, but the night before the, the big four and a half hour race, yeah, I'm putting a lot of salt in my food. Uh, same thing in the morning. And they do have some drink mixes there, these preload mixes. Um, that are higher sodium that can help um, getting yourself just used to training in the heat um, and suffering through it and just making sure you're fully hydrating afterwards um, will help you um, just to be able to tolerate it um, getting um, lots of obviously drinking as much as you can in the, in the race and actually um, making sure you have electrolytes in those drink mixes is critical when you're doing long races in the heat. Um, beyond that, it's, it's mostly just learning to tolerate it, learn to suffer. Uh, like I said, when I do that race, that four and a half hours, we always line up and joke, this is going to suck. This is going to hurt. Uh, and we all know that we are going to get beat up by the heat. And it's just kind of accepting that and, and getting through it. Um, and finally, also recovery. It's actually more important to get the electrolytes right after when you're trying to rehydrate after the event than even during the event. Um, so continue those drink mixes, uh, drink fluid. But if you're just drinking straight water, making sure make sure you're eating something that's got a lot of salt, potassium, and magnesium in it, uh, those sorts of things. Great. And again, very short answer to a very complex, <laughs> big question. Yes. All right. Here's a, another great one. I particularly like it because it talks about the subconscious mind, Trevor. Greg Romero asks, how can I train my subconscious mind while doing sweet spot intervals in an effort to replicate staying in the break as a sprinter? Oh, boy. <laughs> okay, then that's, that's, I have never been asked this one before. How, how can you do this? Um, 
While you're thinking about the answer, I want to pitch another future podcast that we did. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Some slightly off topic, but it's it, I'm really excited about this one. It has to do with fatigue being mental rather than completely physical. And we talked to a leading researcher, Stephen Chung from, from Canada. And uh, you're going to want to check that episode out. It's a really deep discussion on how fatigue actually could be controlled in, in a sense, psychologically in our minds, in our brains. So that's a, that's a good one that you'll want to check out. So one of my favorite quotes of all time was uh, I was talking with Swain Tuff about how he tolerates the fatigue and pain in a 40-kilometer time trial. Uh, and he said, that's really simple. I just take the pain and I put it on a to-do list and I'll tell myself I'll take care of it later. <laughs> an, Which IO, is, an IOU for uh, pain. That, that's like the, was it Douglas Adams who said flying's really easy. All you have to do is trip and miss the floor. It's the same kind of thing. Just saying, oh, I'll just take my pain, put it on a to-do list and, and deal with it later. Um, most people don't have the, the mindset to do that. But the idea here, um, and I think the best answer that I can give you is what's called in psychology the principle of dominant thought, which is we can only have one dominant or one main thing that we are thinking about at any given time. Um, so athletes really learn to be careful about what that dominant thought is. If it is a negative, you get yourself in trouble. If it is a positive, you are going to do better. And so I know this sounds like that psychology where you look in the mirror and tell yourself how wonderful you are and that sort of stuff. But this is actually quite powerful. Um, so, for example, um, what they would say with the principle of dominant thought is if you are going up a climb with a group and you are hurting and you start telling yourself, don't get dropped, don't get dropped, um, your dominant thought is getting dropped. And that's what's going to happen. So don't talk in negatives like that. Likewise, if you're telling yourself this really hurts, all you're doing is focusing on the pain and it's going to become unbearable and you will get dropped. So you need to change that language that you are doing while you are hurting. Um, focus on positive things. So instead of saying, don't get dropped, think about, okay, I want to stay in, uh, avoid going in the wind. I want to be top 10 riders. Uh, tell yourself, okay, this hurts, but it's hurting other people more. Um, I can tolerate this. Focus on the positive things that are going to keep yourself in that group. And notice anytime you use one of those negatives of don't get dropped or boy, this is hurting uh, and try to change that language. That's a good answer. I think uh, it's one of those that uh, there's a lot of research still to be done about that type of, uh, of uh, psychological training, if you will. So um Hopefully, we'll tackle that in a future episode more specifically. Yeah. So I'm actually, we, we have on my, my list, I'm going to write an article called The uh, Pink Elephant, which is all about the, uh, uh, the principle of dominant thought. Uh, and like I said, it is a, uh, a really powerful concept, and it's one I, I've used a lot myself. I used to hate climbing. I turned myself into a climber simply by, whenever I'd hit a climb, I used to go, oh, man, this sucks. I hate climbs. Uh, and just started every time we hit a climb saying, all right, this is great. I'm looking forward to it. And just changing my language made me start to really like climbing. Uh, it's pretty powerful. Okay, what else great. do we have? We've got a follow-up question from Joe Shuhei about recovery. Um, what is active recovery? 
Is it more than simply spinning your legs out on an easy ride instead of sitting on the couch? Should it be once a week? Does active recovery replace days off? Okay. Um, Yeah, so active recovery can apply to a lot of things, but I think what you're talking about is riding a bike easy, um, which a lot of people uh, think of as good recovery. Um, I did some research on recovery modalities for a series of articles a couple years ago. Um, And what I was shocked by was how many of these recovery modalities really seemed to have no benefit. And one that was really shocking was um, a couple studies looked at you finish a race and you do an active cool down versus you finish a race and you get off the bike. And everybody tell you do an active cool down. Every single study showed that uh, athletes recovered better if they didn't do the cool down. That being said, I'm still not sure I buy it. Uh, but that was certainly what the, the research was saying. Uh, and I have read studies uh, on active recovery that, that were showing similar things that actually, no, just resting is better. Um, I'm not going to go that far. I did talk to, um, I think it was Ben Rattray, who did the whole review on the different recovery modalities and said the issue is there's not a lot of money in, in recovery research. So most of these studies just have seven, eight people which is not enough to, to see an, uh, any sort of uh, actual effect. Um, so he believes that a lot of these recovery modalities do work, um, and we just can't effectively research it. So it's not certain. Um, and I'm sorry I'm not giving you a better answer than that. But my feelings on active recovery are, A, be careful about it. Um, I know there's a lot of these active recovery rides. There was one in Fort Collins that I... I went to once. Everybody said, oh, that's great. Come and do active recovery with us on Monday. And it was a race. <laughs> yeah. That's not active recovery. Active recovery is <clears throat> you go out on the bike path and you should have old ladies on commuter bikes passing you. Um, you should be painfully, painfully, painfully slow. Um, when I do an active recovery ride, my heart, average heart rate will be under 100. Um, the other thing I will say to you is just from reading your, maybe I'm misinterpreting you here. Um, but for reading your, your question, be careful about thinking that sitting on the couch isn't a good thing. Um, that is the one thing I did get out of the research is that our bodies are amazing, um, at figuring out how to recover and how to rebuild, uh, to a degree, get out of the way and let them do it. And don't feel like you always have to be doing something. Mm-hmm. I still will say the best recovery is sleep, good nutrition, resting. Yeah, you want to train hard and you want to rest harder. harder. Right. So I always one of my expressions that athletes I coach probably hate to hear anymore is uh, be as intense in your recovery as you are in your training. So the more intensely you train, the more intensely you need to recover, which is basically sleep. Yep. Great. All right. Moving on to a question from Travis Chapman. We've got about uh, 12 more minutes, I guess. Travis Chapman asks, I work three or four 12-hour shifts in a row for my job. Uh, I have little more time to train than a 15 to 20-minute commute. Is it okay to load up on weekends a bit to make up for this? or still keep a mostly traditional week schedule for training. Okay, so make sure I understand this. So it's, it's, he's saying he works 12 hours, three days in a row? It sounds like, yes, three or in four 12-hour yep. shifts in a row. 
And so he's just doing the 15 to 20 minute commute, I assume on a bike. Um, and then he's try- asking, should I load up on the weekends to make up for the, the that yeah. lack of training during the week? Yeah, you have yourself, I will admit, in, in a tough situation. Um, but, you know, for example, we have a guy up in Toronto who's been absolutely dominating the uh, – what are called the masters one the highest level masters races and he's a firefighter and it's a similar sort of thing he has to do uh three four days where he can't train and then he just gets in big training on the days when he's not on duty uh, and it's worked very well for him uh so i i think you have to um load up a little more on the training on those those days in between uh, i would say don't send your since you're working a 12-hour shift um, that's not really a recovery day. So I would say don't kill yourself up until the, so let's say you, you, your first 12 hour day is Monday. Don't kill yourself on a Sunday and right. go to work tired. I would say train hard, train hard through the Saturday, make Sunday a recovery day so you can actually get some good rest. Uh, do your shifts and do your best during those shifts to, to, um, rest. And then when you're, you're done with those three, four days in a row, hit the training again. Um, and those commutes, um, it, you could think about maybe using one to, to do some intervals or some neuromuscular work. But I think for the most part, you're trying to get yourself through those long shifts, not too tired so you can get quality training later. Mm-hmm. I have a slightly uh, similar scenario in that I do a lot of training, I guess you could call it, while commuting during the week. And then I do load up a bit more on weekends. You actually train? Well, that's why I say I call it the commuter train. Yes. Um, Chris rides 15 hours a day and kills everybody in Boulder, drives us 15 15 15 minutes minutes a day, yes. No, my my commute's more about 30 minutes. Uh, Sometimes I'm able to stretch it to an hour and, and this is in one direction and then the thing that I do, if I turn the morning into a session where I'm going to go hard, super easy on the way home or vice versa. You don't want to go hard. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you don't want to go hard both times. No. Um, no. So I will uh, – and you, you can pick and choose your days just like you would otherwise. You don't want to go – hard every morning of the week those 15 minutes that's not going to benefit you i think you want to be strategic about when you're going hard when you're maybe doing some intervals into those short short rides and then of course uh, on the way home just go super easy i wrote an article a couple of years ago on using your commute uh, for training and actually that was chris's request because he wanted to figure out how to maximize that time so he asked me to write the article uh, we interviewed a bunch of people. We, we found whatever research we could. And really, that's what we came up with, which is the um, uh, make one way really easy. The other way, take a longer route to work and, and get some structured work in. As Chris said, not every day, but once or twice per week. Yep. Great. Okay. Let's see. We've got a question from Alex Dove. Do you have any tips on transitioning from training for cross in the late summer and fall to training for long road and gravel races in the spring and summer? Okay, so the first thing I'm going to jump on here again, I I don't know you, so I apologize. I'm making assumptions, but I'm going to talk to a lot of cross riders I've seen here. Um, It is critical to have a rest. Uh, When I see 
it's, it is very hard to do both a cross season and a road season. Um, and I do think if you want to be your absolute best, uh, you have to pick one or the other. You can't be your absolute best at both. Um, and I've never seen anybody successfully do that. Uh, but you can be pretty good at both. Uh, but where people doing both get themselves in trouble is not having that rest because they finish the cross season and go, boy, I only have three, four months before the season starts, so I better get my butt in gear. Um, you can do that for a year, maybe two years, but you're very quickly going to burn yourself out. So my first recommendation is get a good rest at the end of the cross season. Get off the bike uh, for several weeks and then ease back in for a few weeks. Um, and then you just need to be doing a, a shorter base season. Um, so your base season is starting later than a lot of the people who are just doing road. Um, and instead of getting three, four months in that a lot of other people are going to get in, you're going to be looking at just getting two months in. Um, but I would still say get that good quality two months of base um, towards the end of it, bring in the intensity um, and just accept that maybe your first couple races, you're not going to be on quite as good form as some of the other people. Does that answer the question? I think it does, yeah. yeah. Um, all right. This one, let me ask it and see if you actually want to answer it. Uh, I don't know how it jives with your, your philosophy, but Dr. Seilers refers to a three-zone system derived from testing in the lab when using a polarized training philosophy. How can I use my current power profile to establish a three-zone system? Yeah, so you've probably heard me talk about Dr. Seiler a lot. I really... Um... You know, I, I think I've read all of his research and not aware of any studies I haven't seen. Um, and I'm a big fan, and I'm certainly a fan of the polarized model. And the idea of this three-zone model is um, Seiler wrote a, a whole review paper or paper um, talking about he didn't like the five-zone model because it's not really based on any sort of physiology. Um, and what he said is, when you look at a lactate test, when you look at our, our physiology, we have two critical breakpoints. Um, so when you start training really, really easy, uh, initially you're using all slow twitch muscle fibers, you're completely aerobic, um, and your lactate levels are staying very low. You hit a certain point where your lactate levels start to kick up, and, and that tends to correspond with the point where you start recruiting fast twitch muscle fibers. So that's called your aerobic threshold. Um, tends to also happen right around two millimoles of, of blood lactate level. Um, so that's the first marker. Second marker is your lactate threshold, anaerobic threshold, FTP, MLSS. There's a whole bunch of different terms to refer to it. They'll actually all give you slightly different numbers. That's a whole different conversation. Uh, so zone one is below that aerobic threshold. Zone two is between the two thresholds. Zone three is above your anaerobic threshold. And Seiler says basically... 75 to 80% of your training should be in that zone one. About 15% of your training should be in zone three and almost none in zone two. That's being modified for cyclists. He did. He based a lot of his research on skiers and other sports. They're actually discovering cyclists spend um, probably 15 to 20% of their time uh, actually in that zone two. So the only way you can truly find out those two markers for yourself is to go into a lab and get tested. Uh, beyond that, um, using some of the FTP tests will give you an okay approximate of your anaerobic threshold. It's not perfect. Uh, generally, I find what, what people come up with for their FTP is a little high, and so I go slightly lower than that with my athletes. 
your aerobic threshold tends to be around 85% of your anaerobic threshold. Um, at least by heart rate power, I tend to find it a little bit lower. Um, so if you are doing this out on the road, um, there, there, with my athletes, like I said, there, there's a, a lot of art to this than just science, but the roughs are, do you find your FTP, multiply that by about 0.85 or 0.83, and that's going to give you your, your other marker. And then you know your zones. Sort of. <laughs> All right. I think we have time maybe for just one more question, um, and then we can wrap things up. Okay. Let's see. And this refers back to recovery rides. When doing those recovery rides with really low power, sorry, this is from Tom Hawley, do you want to keep cadence high or should cadence be low as well? Uh, I am a big believer in keeping cadence high. Um, and one of the best things my old coach ever did for me when he saw that I was a grinder uh, is basically told me every time I'm out for a ride, unless it's a race or I'm doing intervals, try to keep it 100 RPM, which I hated, I struggled with. So he finally put me on a fixie bike and made me go to all of our, our center's group rides on the fixie bike. So I'd sit there and die at 110 RPM. <laughs> uh, the benefits I saw from that were unbelievable. It transformed me as a cyclist. Uh, and I have become a big believer in keeping up high cadence work and doing that high cadence work when you can. That being said, dedicated uh, uh, big gear training is also really, really beneficial. And I actually just read this study, fascinating study from 2011, uh, where they looked at a year's worth of data on 10 uh, national caliber and world caliber cyclists uh, to see what differentiated the, their, the different levels. Uh, and really, in terms of interval work, training work, they found no correlation between the types of interval work that they were doing and performance level. The only thing that correlated was the higher performers did more strength work. So off the bike in the weight room training, but also they did a fair amount of um, interval work at low cadences um, up towards threshold. I'm not saying go and make that all your training. You will be super slow and never be able to respond to a single attack, uh, but not a bad thing to include at some point during your base season to get in some of that, that big gear work. Um, rest of the time when you're out just doing your, your steady rides, especially in the base season, uh, focusing on high cadence is, is a fantastic thing to do, and I highly recommend it. I uh, see Frank Overton just posted, probably tell me, Trevor, what are you no, talking Frank, about? No, Frank Overton just asked, can you ask Chris Case about his secret cyclocross training? Yeah, so Chris... Uh, he doesn't know my secrets, Frank. That's why they're secret. <laughs> These two race each other locally. Chris, uh, mm -hmm. I think I said this at the beginning of this. His warm-up for his cyclocross races is to sit there and hold his two-year-old daughter while his wife races. Uh, then as soon as she finishes, because he's the race right after hers, he jumps on his bike. And what? so several weeks ago, he won the 40-plus uh, uh, race on the Saturday. So he decided to do the Cat 1-2 race on the Sunday and won that too. And, and again, his training is commuting to work. So we all hate Chris here. Well, it, I, I must point out that the, the open race that I did win, all the incredibly talented kids that live in Colorado, like Gage Hecht and uh, 
um, Denzel Stevenson and Max Chance and Eric Brunner and all those guys were not around that week. And so it was, and, and, you know, other top guys that, uh, race in this state weren't around. So I won, but big asterisk next to it. Not a lot of guys that would normally beat me were there. So trying to stay humble here, Trevor. Yeah. <laughs> Chris and I go and do long climbs together, and I used to consider myself a decent climber until he would just ride away from me, and then he would go and climb up on the rocks to take pictures of me as I'm <laughs> suffering up these climbs. So hey, Frank, gotta yes, get my Instagram. I, I, I want to find out his secret myself. I wish I knew. Thanks for all of your questions out there. Uh, hopefully you got a lot out of this episode. We will post it um, to the SoundCloud feed at some point pretty soon. Um, so you can share it with your friends. Uh, and, uh, yeah, thanks again. Yep. And we have an episode coming up tomorrow on weightlifting. So last year we talked about why you should be in the weight room. Uh, and we got several people, uh, sending an email saying, Hey, you promised you'd tell us what to do in the weight room. So, uh, tomorrow is that podcast and, and we have a fantastic guest. Um, from CU Sports, who uh, knows a lot more about weight training than I do, and, and she has a lot of really good advice. So we hope you enjoy that one. Great. Okay. You want to say goodbye, Trevor? Let's say goodbye, Chris. All right. See ya. <laughs> Take care, everybody. Thank you.